0: Whitney, did you ever go to one of those nightclubs where there's a velvet rope and you're wondering what the hell is going on behind there?
1: Yeah, of course. The velvet rope makes me want to be in there.
0: Well, we have one now because True Sex and Wild Love
1: now has a subscription
0: called Behind Closed Doors. Tell people what's back there.
1: Oh my God. There's so much good stuff back there. So this is very exclusive. It's like being a part of our inner circle. And if you want to have really in-depth Q&As to where you can actually ask us anything, or if there's been questions you've been wondering about or a little fearful to ask, we're going to have even more guests with deeper conversations. And what I'm really excited about personally – is the squirting episode, the famous, famous squirting episode with Wednesday. <laughs> you get to hear it. You get to learn about it. It's it's my favorite episode so far. You don't want to miss
0: it. Just join us behind closed doors. That's where everything happens, and it's worth the subscription fee. Trust us.
1: Trust me. We wouldn't lie to you guys, okay? You know that we put out some good stuff, but this behind closed doors is really going to be mind-blowing. See you there. To subscribe, visit B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-S-W-L, like True Sex Wild Love, behind closed doors. Hey, Whitney. Hey. Hail Satan. (laughs) Well. Okay. I didn't expect us to start that way, but I understand why. It's
0: the only way I can talk about how unusual and amazing Dr. Eric Sprenkel, our guest, is. He connects Satanism to sex ed, to being pro-sex work, to being pro-LGBTQ, and to being anti-Christian oppression of
1: sexuality. He's one of the most interesting people I feel like we've had on the show in such a great interviewee. Um, He's an associate professor of clinical psychology and co-director of the Sexuality Studies Program at Minnesota State University, and he's also a certified sex therapist.
0: Wow. He's great, and he loves Edgar Allan Poe, so just have a listen. You're going to love this one. Absolutely. Enjoy, guys. ...where I'm in the sex-positive space. Melded social media and sex ed in the funnest, funniest ways it's Dr. Eric Sprankle. Welcome to our show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yes. Thank you for coming on. I have been following you on Instagram for a while and reposting a, a bunch of your tweets <laughs> and a lot of my friends started following you because of them. And I just wanted to start this podcast off by reading some of my favorite ones so people can understand why I'm obsessed with you. I mean, if, they're, okay? living,
0: if they're living under a rock and they don't already
1: know
2: <laughs> who you are. All right.
1: So my favorite one, which I tell people all the time, is by this guy, Pastor John Hagey. Is that his name?
2: Yeah, it's either Hagey or Hagee. I don't know.
1: One of the two. But what he wrote, he tweeted, obedience brings blessings and disobedience brings consequences. And you tweeted back, yes, daddy. (laughs)
0: just subverting that message and making it so much more delicious
2: yeah he'll tweet that like every six months and then so every six months i have to say that same joke i just can't resist he he... just an easy target
1: it's such an easy target does he ever see that or retweet you or like has there any been back and forth between you guys
2: no there's never been any engagements which is nice i've never been blocked and there's never back and forth i mean from his actual followers um yeah i just have like a not a really a personal beef, more of a professional beef with him impacting some former, uh, I think they were, yeah, former clients of mine back when I was doing clinical work really got in their heads uh, with some sex negativity. So this is just my way of kind of lashing out against him sometimes and, in an adolescent way.
0: And, you know, it's, it might be adolescent, but I think it's so effective Is as- the adjective that I might use. And to me, some of your most effective tweets are the ones that are multiple points. Like you literally have bullet points. So I'm going to read one that I loved. It's recent. In case a pastor told you otherwise, casual sex can be healthy. Your sexual orientation is valid. Chastity isn't inherently virtuous. Monogamy isn't ideal for all. Hell, fake. Masturbate. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> Epic. Go ahead, Whitney.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Right. So here's another one. No need to worship gods, but if you do, at least worship ones who are cool with masturbation. Amen.
2: Amen. I still agree with that.
1: Totally. I absolutely agree with that. And then I do love how you have your midweek reminders. Your sexuality is more than your genitals. The world doesn't revolve around your erection. We always talk about that here. Don't assume someone wants to see your penis. True. And eat some vegetables. So.
0: Oh, God bless. Okay, here's one of my favorites from three days ago. Weekend self-care can include meditating, calling a friend, baking cookies, unionizing. <laughs> I love how Eric introduces sort of the radical social activism piece into sex positivity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Twitter has been uh, a fun outlet for me for the past I think eight or nine years I've been on it, just kind of tinkering around with some random thoughts that pop up and then being able to try to, as concisely as possible, write them down and get them out there.
0: And then people have migrated your tweets over to Instagram. You have a big Instagram presence as well. And I wanted to ask you about this and get you to talk about this a little. Can you talk to us about how you came to sex ed, first of all? And then how did you latch onto to this idea that social media was a great niche for you? Because I know it's a little bit looked down on in conventional academia sometimes.
2: Right. Um, my interest in sexuality education and just being a sexual health professional really didn't get on my radar until my second year in college as an undergrad. And I took a uh, human sexuality class at the University of Cincinnati. is is one of the most popular classes there, which they tend to be. Um, I was in there with, I think, like 450 like other students and just some large auditorium. Mm-hmm. And everything that I thought I knew about sex was either a very watered-down version or just flat-out false. Um, so not only was it very illuminating and eye-opening to get all this factual information about sexuality, um, just kind of seeing my professor up there and that this was his area of specialty as a, a psych professor, that just also really opened my eyes to another uh, career tra- trajectory, and it was ever since then. So that would have been like two thousand one, two thousand two, something like that. Um, that was that's what sparked the interest.
0: And I know that you and I are similar in that, in an age where people there's a lot of personal confession and talking about personal lives, you and I really don't do that. Um, much at all. But could you talk to us about, you know, was there an opinion in your family about you focusing on sex or was there pushback or was there something about your family history that made sex, you know, a topic that was interesting to you? How did you, other than that, the topic interested you in college, was there some, you know, personal thing um, in your life that you think has made you uniquely open about sex?
2: (laughs) Yeah, not really. Um, I joke with that with my parents. My parents actually joke with that with me, um, back direction, (laughs) um, that there must have been something in my background that would have led me down this path. Um, But no, there there, there wasn't. I didn't grow up in an uber, like sexually repressive Catholic household. I grew up Catholic, but we were just kind of your run-of-the-mill Catholics going through the motions. It wasn't like this kind of, air of sex negativity hanging over me the whole time. And it wasn't the opposite either. I wasn't raised by hippies where sex was openly talked about. So pretty much typical for most people where it just wasn't talked about much. Um, So that created its own taboo, but nothing remarkable. I think what really attracted to me was the nature of sexual politics, because I've always been interested in like social justice and political activism, dating back to like high school, and then just the intersection of politics and sexuality and how so much is regulated at the state and federal level, um, that just really kind of piqued my interest. Um, so it really was, I'm sorry for all the marriage and family therapists listening out there, but there's really not the family <laughs> system's origin to some of this interest that I have.
1: Right. They're like, come on. There absolutely is. He's I just know. lying to us. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. It, not. Unfortunately, I wish I had a better memoir to share. But, but uh, I think it's but, really
0: cool that for you, it was like an intellectual thing that you learned about it. And it kind of set your brain on fire when you, you know, connected the dots that what you thought you knew was wrong.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a good way of putting it more like an intellectual pursuit. It's always been kind of a bookish kind of uh, focus for me as opposed to like this personal passion project.
0: You know what my husband always says, um, when he reads something that I've written about sex, he says, wow, you really know how to make sex boring Wednesday.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But you have
0: done the opposite.
2: Well, I try to make it funny sometimes. Um, But that's that's about it. It is still really grounded in a very academic perspective of it that can take a very sexy topic and make it very unsexy very easily. Um, (laughs) So I at least try to punch it up a little bit with some humor here and there.
1: And I really like that because I feel like sometimes the topic of sex can be so serious because there's so much ta- taboo around it. We shouldn't be talking about it. We should be doing this. And there's like, everyone has their opinion about it. But I, that's what I really enjoy about your work is that you do have humor and you kind you make it fun and you kind of make fun of things, which is enjoyable for me.
2: I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, that's certainly an aim of mine to be a, a little flip at times, irreverent for sure. Um, and not... Be shy to to mocking systems of oppression that try to restrict sexuality. Mm -hmm.
0: So I want to know the story of how you came to social media. You know, like when was that? Did you have a eureka moment about it? What was the process of building your following and finding your voice in this new kind of new niche?
2: Well, I think I was on Facebook and like MySpace prior to that, but that that was more just for personal use. Uh, Twitter was the first one that I actually created. Um, intentionally to be a professional account. So I've always had the the Dr. Sprinkle account on that. But when I first started tweeting, I, I think I had around the same time, just a blog that I started. I forget what the platform was, if it was like WordPress or something like that, whatever it was around in like 2010, 2011. And it really was just kind of a vehicle to kind of share some of those posts, even though I had like, 30 followers at that time. So I was essentially just talking to myself. <laughs> and what I liked about Twitter, because at that time it was the 180 character limit, was taking these ideas that I was writing down in like 600 word blog posts and trying to condense them down in 180 characters. And I actually really enjoyed kind of that um, that challenge and that process of being as concise as possible, getting it when, when every, literally every letter matters to try to get it, your point across in 180 characters um, that has always appealed to me. And even when they Twitter opened it up to whatever it is now, like double that 260 or something, it is still, I view it as kind of like an art form of uh, a challenge of to be as concise and succinct as possible, but still get your message across without much ambiguity.
0: And there's a real art to it. I mean, you know, like you said, now we have more characters to work with, but I think even now, you know, there's just, such a an individual signature to people's tweets and yours really stands out like Whitney said um for the humor for the information and for the subversiveness um and i'm always curious about what happens to people who have academic credentials and clients and you know has there been pushback do people think it's not serious enough to be on twitter or have you found that people you know, are inspired and admire it or what's going on with that for you?
2: Uh, typically positive, positive for interactions with students who may come across uh, one of my accounts um, or if they, if they don't follow me, that they may have seen one of my tweets, screenshot and then post on whatever platform that they're on. Um, that's always been a positive reception. Um, I think from the perspective of the higher-ups in the university food chain, the administration, they probably don't care about it too much. Uh, care as in, like, they have a negative view mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. They only are aware of me on social media when somebody's complaining. And so if one of my tweets mm-hmm. gets circulated through right-wing media. I was, was talked about on Tucker Carlson's show a couple of years ago. So when that kind of stuff happens... And then the hate mail starts coming in, not just at me. I'm used to that. That's on a daily basis. But when they start forwarding it on to like deans and provosts and presidents of the university, um, that's like, okay, who's this Eric Sprankle guy? What did he tweet? And so they they have zero context of like my online persona. It's not even a persona, but my online activities. Um, And they're just seeing that, holy shit, we're getting a lot of blowback. We need to do some damage control. Um, But, I'm not tweeting anything that is, like, fireable or anything. I'm I'm very mindful that this isn't a personal account. It has my professional identity attached to it. I'm certainly not a spokesperson for the university, um, so I'm not speaking on their behalf. It is still personal in that way. Um, But students, again, anything like other faculty, they like it. Higher-ups, they would probably prefer. I just kind of <laughs> went offline for a while.
1: Just <laughs> deleted your account. Like, deleted my account. You, but yeah. Let's go ahead and shut down your social media, huh?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but I actually like to hear that one, that your students really enjoy it because I know if I were going, you're at Minnesota State University, right? Correct. If I was there, I would be the student that's like setting my alarm to get into your class and like finding ways to make sure I had a spot, even if I had to knock someone out or something? <laughs> just get into Dr. Sprinkle's class. I would just have to be in there. Um, is there just a long line and like a waiting waiting list for your class?
2: Uh, sometimes. I, I teach um, an undergraduate psychology of sexual health. That's a popular one, usually open to 50 to 100 students. That usually fills up quickly. Um, and then some other classes that I teach, yeah, I mean, they, they fill up quickly, but we're in the psych department. Our classes fill up anyways. Um, we usually all have some sort of wait list. I think what's nice with me that I don't teach the required core courses. So all of my courses I teach, unless someone's a sexuality studies minor, then one of my courses is required for that. But otherwise, all my courses are electives. Um, and so it it is reinforcing to see that even my elective classes, that they don't have to take this for any reason other than they want to, um, is reinforcing. Um, for that. And, and it's also nice for, I think, not only the university, but for the student, because if there are individuals who don't like what I tweet about, I wouldn't want that student to feel uncomfortable being in my class, even though I don't talk about half the stuff that I tweet about more on the political side of stuff, the anti-religious stuff. That's not in the classroom. That's just online stuff. But even with that, sometimes they get they can get a, a sense of you know what my beliefs are, or the lack thereof. And I wouldn't want to teach like Psych 101 or research methods, which all of our students have to take if they would be uncomfortable with that. So it's nice. I already have like a self-selection bias of students signing up for my class just because they want to, not because they have to.
0: It's Mm. funny. Yeah. And I love that you um, can on Twitter let people know kind of what they're in for if they're taking one of um, your elective classes that are about. Your areas of special interest in sexuality and anthropology, we call that honest signaling. Yeah. <laughs> you know they can <laughs> they can see who you are on Twitter, get a sense of that, and make a choice. I would hate um for anybody, and we have interviewed sex researchers and experts who really um have a hard time teaching what they want to teach in the classroom, and Twitter helps them um, you know be able to communicate those messages,
2: yeah, it's, absolutely.
0: It's great that you're that you're using both. So you don't just teach and tweet. You're also <laughs> a certified sex therapist, right? So do you have a private practice?
2: I don't. I, I go in and out of a private practice. I have office space available to me um, in town, but other than uh, let's see, when was this? I think last. Fall, fall of 2018 when I took a semester sabbatical uh, to go back into the full-time or at least part-time clinical work. Um, I, d- I don't do clinical work regularly. I, I just keep my license active and that ASEC certified sex therapy thing active. It's a nice like safety net in case I get fired today and I can like <laughs> hang out, hang a, you know, a sign out saying like I'm, I'm open for business as a therapist. But no, it's it's certainly way, way on the back burner. And I just kind of go in and out of it as as time allows. But okay. I haven't done full-time clinical work since my postdoc back in 2010.
0: So if people wanted to work with you as a sex therapist, they can't do that. But they can get some great um, input from your Twitter about your right. thoughts, about what helps. I'm curious um, about, you know, thinking about you teaching and having had a clinical practice previously I wonder if you could just tell us, you know, maybe the one or two biggest concerns that people bring to you about their sexuality. I'm just imagining I was an undergraduate. I'm imagining yeah. being your student and what I would want to say to you in office hours, what I would want to ask you, you know, what, what has your experience with that been the most common preoccupations or worries that people have?
2: From students or from clients when I used to? I
0: think both would be great both. to hear.
2: Yeah. So from clients, it, it kind of clustered into pretty distinct areas. With, with students, it's a little kind of all over the place as to what they're most interested in and what they have questions about, which is nice, uh, which I can cover all in my lower level sexual health classes, where it's just uh, essentially a remedial course for the, the poor K through 12 sex ed that students get yeah. or don't get any. Um, so I kind of cover it all uh, for them. But when I was doing clinical work, what I noticed with clients back in my postdoc years, it was it was definitely what would be considered um, "quote unquote" uh, sex addiction. And what I mean by that, why I put it in quotations, was because they weren't actually like addicted to sex; they didn't have hypersexuality or anything along those lines. It was just that essentially at the core of it, well, you had two. Two camps. The the primary camp were people who were anxious and or depressed and had a difficult time communicating their sexual needs to their primary partner, which is typically a spouse. Mm. And so they still had sexual needs, and so how they um, met those sexual needs was typically through online pornography. After their family went to bed, eventually mm. they got caught, and now they look like this sex addict just because oh. they have this you know mile long uh, you know internet uh, browser history. Of all these porn sites and the betrayal there was the secrecy and it definitely has less to do with the sex and so that was the the primary concern that i saw during those mm. po- postdoctoral years were couples coming in with labeling one partner as a sex addict and it was kind of a, the work then was untangling all of that of like what you were doing masturbating to online porn That's not the unhealthy issue. The unhealthy issue was not being able to assert your sexual needs, to do things with privacy, but not secrecy. And so that was a long process to get these unassertive, very very passive, a lot of times anxious and depressed individuals to live a more sexually healthy life. Mm.
1: And what does that process kind of look like? So if people are listening to this thinking, oh, my God, that's me, what mm-hmm. are some of the things that you would recommend that they would, could do themselves or questions that they could ask themselves or their partner to kind of start that process for them?
2: Well, this this work was often like a year plus in therapy. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's not you know, a magic wand uh, that can you know reverse course for folks uh, pretty easily. But what was at the root of it it was just finding these routines that these individuals would find themselves in of engaging in behavior that was secret and potentially detrimental to their relationship. Detrimental just because it was secret. There was nothing inherently wrong with what they were doing or unhealthy with what they were doing. It was just violating the relationship contract, whether that was spoken or unspoken. And so it was just bringing that to the surface and finding the patterns which they would engage in these behaviors these behaviors secretly and what what well, what were the precursors to that was it stress at work was it having a fight with your spouse and then you would engage in these behaviors which were serving as a coping mechanism And then it was the coping mechanism that was actually getting this person in trouble. So then let's back up. Let's address the thing that was kickstarting this in the first place. Like, well, how can you manage stress better on the job? How can you have better communication skills with your partner to be able to talk about these things so you're not having to cope in secret? Um, Because it doesn't matter what the coping mechanism is. It, It could have been substance use. It could have been gambling, shopping. It could just be going out golfing um, with, with your friends and not really prioritizing your relationship. So the behavior itself wasn't important. It was the mechanism leading up to that behavior.
1: Ooh, that's really interesting. Cause that could even go into like cheating and infidelity, right?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Most of the people that I saw were doing this just online, but a few of them had in-person, um, relationships too.
0: Can you speak a little bit to two things? Because we hear this a lot. A a lot of experts tell us, you know, the term sex addiction is really misused, and as is the term porn addiction. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify that for some of our listeners who might hear the terms, you know, bandied about and, you know, they are pretty misused?
2: Yeah, they are misused um, and misunderstood. My beef with them is not really that sex can't be addictive? I'm sure at some point we'll have the research that kind of shows more of a neurological mechanism that drives sexual behavior even compulsively. So I'm not dismissing that possibility. What I dismiss and critique is how it's treated uh, uh, within the sex addiction model and how it's treated as viewing the sexual behavior as the problem and therefore abstinence or abstaining from the behavior as the solution. It's very sex shaming whereas mm-hmm. if we can admit that can somebody somebody's sexual behavior become problematic for them i think we all can agree that that could be the case sex can become a problem mm-hmm. for for us in a variety of different ways mm-hmm. but is it the behavior itself what they're doing whether it's masturbating interpersonal sex looking at porn that's usually not the issue it's the relationship that they have with that behavior that's the issue and that's becoming unhealthy and so it's modifying that uh, unhealthy relationship to more of a healthy one, as opposed to just eliminating and abstaining from the behavior. And that's the critique with sex and porn addiction, at least for me, is that usually those who operate within that language of that addiction language will take more take more of a like a 12-step abstinence kind of approach to their behavior and view like even like masturbating as like a slippery slope to whatever, quote unquote, sex addiction that they have.
0: Right. And I think, you know, to your point, so many people might enjoy porn, enjoy it a lot, and Mm -hmm. worry that enjoying it this much must be that porn is addictive because they like it this much. And it really impinges on their ability to enjoy it and get the good things from it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's usually the common question that people start with, uh, or the, the the root of the concern is the frequency, that they're doing this too much. And then they ask, like, well, how much is too much? And frequency, at least from my perspective and clinical perspective, is completely irrelevant. That That gives me almost zero information about whether or not something is problematic for somebody. I want to know if this is personally distressing to you. I want to know if this is interfering with your life in some way. And something can interfere with somebody's life if they're doing it once a day, um, and somebody who is doing it ten times a day may not have any distress or impairment in their life. So frequency is not the, the greatest guide. I want to know what kind of impact this is having for you. And I always start off, um, so we're not pathologizing the behavior. I ask, so if somebody's looking at porn and they're concerned that it's they're, they're doing it too much or that it's creating problems in their life, I always start with, okay, how can you look at pornography and masturbate in a healthy way? What do you think that would look like? And then that's where we start a blueprint to engaging in these behaviors in a healthy way and start modifying the unhealthy mechanisms that they're engaging in currently.
1: Right. Because that's going to change for person to person, whatever feels the most healthy for them.
2: Right. Exactly. It's very individualized.
1: So we
0: talked about what couples who came to you for, to your clinical practice, that that was probably the biggest issue that you dealt with, this idea of addiction or too much. And can you tell us about your students, you know, what's preoccupying them or, you know, what's really important to them when they come to you to talk to you about sex?
1: This makes me laugh because I can only just wonder <laughs> if I was back in college, what I would be asking you.
0: Oh, I have my questions.
1: My <laughs> 18-year-old Wednesday Martin has
0: some questions.
2: Oh, Lord. <laughs> Yeah, I I do that um, usually on the first or second day of class. I'll pass around you know a stack of note cards and just have them write you know one two three questions on it anonymously that they turn in and then I'll try to answer those questions throughout the semester if it fits nicely into one of the lectures I have planned. And reading through those that that stack of of note cards is really eye opening of you know the, the problems with K through twelve sex ed and the lack thereof. Because these are things that should have been addressed at like the fifth grade level for some of the things of focusing on anatomy and then wow. just how bodies function. Um, a lot of questions about STIs that are just fueled from scare tactics that they've been taught their whole life. Um, so it's, it's a lot of just like little things um, that, can, that should have been easily corrected a long time ago. And it's kind of sad that they're not getting this information until college when we should be focused on more like advanced topics in sexual health. But again, like I said earlier, it's more of kind of like a remedial class, for very poor sex ed and kind of correcting all those scare tactics and misinformation that they receive. So it, it's very minor, minor stuff. But at the same time, it's, it's very sad that we do as a culture have this ignorance uh, about sex that we carry into adulthood.
0: And, you know, we're living in a moment under an administration that's so anti-science and we're seeing how we pay the price for that. Um, and it it filters into sex ed too. I mean, we've had decades of abstinence only sex ed in many states. What's your advice to parents or, you know, big sisters and brothers or aunties and uncles who are listening who want to communicate um in healthy ways and answer questions that the younger people in their lives have how how can we how can we help fill this gap in sex ed as people who are sex positive and you know want to yeah
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, we have to be at least somewhat comfortable for ourselves before being able to to educate and and teach others. And so that takes some, you know, self reflection and some increased comfort, which is saying certain words. I mean, it's very common that we still refer to penises and clitorises as just like down there or, or private parts and we don't do that for any other part of our bodies that we're much more comfortable saying this is an elbow, this is a toe. But when we get to the genitals, we come up with, you know, 20 different euphemisms as a, as opposed to saying what it's actually you called. You guys
0: just call it a penis. Just call mm-hmm. it a vulva. Use right. the name. Whitney and I have said right. this before in the podcast, but it's so good to keep saying it. Thank you for yeah. saying that. I
1: agree. And we had Mama Gina on the show a while ago, and I think she mm-hmm. said that one word for vulva that somebody came up to her with was like walt whitman like you <laughs> know right. no, it was walter winchell walter okay. winchell that's what wow. it was like how did you first off how did you come up with that name and don't ever call my vulva or vagina <laughs> or if i had a penis don't call it walter winchell don't that do that
2: Kind of it's, royal.
0: That's
1: very formal. Okay. It was like, I <laughs> that. He was a gossip columnist in the
0: 30s and 40s. But, but, you know, Mama Gina talked to us about the power of using real words. And you're saying that, Eric, you're saying yeah. there's a real power in that.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that's, you know, a good stepping stone to be increasing your own comfort to be able to talk about this comfortably with others. Now, I don't work at all, both clinically and then obviously at the university with uh, teens or or children. So usually I'm just looking for resources where other people are doing this work great. And the people that I always come across as sex positive families, um, I follow their accounts um, online and they're just putting out excellent information of how to have these conversations um, that a lot of people shy away from as adults, let alone talking to children and teens about, but are necessary for uh, their overall health. And so, sex-positive families—I can't promote them enough.
0: I love them on IG. You know, they're yeah. ju- they're literally called "sex-positive underscore families." And anybody mm-hmm. who's looking to communicate in non-messed-up ways um, to the younger people in your life about sexuality—they are absolutely wonderful. As is. Eric's Twitter.
1: <laughs> and really, I think for people too, it's also like you like you said too, educating yourself, you know, like getting really curious. Maybe you don't completely agree with this stuff, but get curious and just open your mind to a different way of thinking. Just start that. I
2: know. Right. Freaking yeah. Crazy, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I always say that we, all of us are very egocentric with our sexuality. And that takes a lot to, to recognize and to kind of keep that in check that what turns us on personally, we think is universal and what turns of, us off personally, we think is universal. And so that's, I think, where we can get easily into like these knee-jerk reactions to some atypical types of sexual interests and behaviors or paraphilias and thinking that it's gross or offensive or unhealthy or, I mean, deviant just because it's not for us. Mm -hmm. And that's just, we think that sexuality revolves around us and it's not. So I, I think as any kind of educator, whether you're a formal educator or informal, just in your family unit, um to recognize that everybody's going to be a little bit different and what does sexual health look like for this person specifically
0: I love the idea that we cannot have a rigid definition of sexual health that you know there's a spectrum
2: right yeah and that that's certainly at a core of, of my if I had a mission statement that would that would be in there <laughs> and and that's why I am so opposed to um Christianity, at least in in this country, because it does try to prescribe a one size fits all model of sexual health that is extremely rigid and restrictive. And that's great if you fit into that, and that aligns with your sexual values. But we can't delude ourselves into thinking that 300 million people will fit into that very narrow definition of sexual health. And so Mm. when it gets legislated, so it's not even just critiquing a religious belief. It's that that religious belief is institutionalized in this country and having institutionalized within our laws that that's where we need to fight back against um, against that uh, oppression and to loosen up that definition of what sexual health means.
1: Amen.
0: Amen. And, you know, I've always been curious um, about this, about you, Eric. You just told us, you know, in the beginning of this interview, you were talking about how you, I can't remember what you said. Did you say run of the mill Catholic or no big deal Catholic?
2: Right? (laughs) Going going through the motions Catholic.
0: Going through the motions Catholic. Uh I love that. That describes so many people who are Catholic. (laughs) So what was it that galvanized your feelings that you had to take a stand about religion? Because it wasn't that you were um, bludgeoned uh, with anti-sex Catholicism as a kid, you're saying. But right. but something brought you to this point where you said, I really have to take a stand against um, some of the ways Christianity is misrepresenting sexuality and guilting people. What brought you there?
2: I don't know if there was a defining moment. Um, again, this is one of those things where people expect something in my my past of something pretty remarkable. I know certainly from those within the kind of conservative movements think that i had a a very traumatic experience within um, my uh, faith growing up but that wasn't the case i mean it was just it was just something that we we went through like we yeah we say a quick little prayer before dinner i had a i was a good little catholic boy by having a rosary and a crucifix in my room and we went to mass every sunday i looked forward to going Dunkin' Donuts afterwards. <laughs> so that was the highlight. Praying
0: um, and donuts.
2: <laughs> right. Pretty good. So that's what I remember the most. Um, <laughs> donuts so,
1: might get me to go to church.
2: <laughs> I know. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to, <laughs> to hook me back in, and, and Dunkin' Donuts would be one of them. Um, but when I stopped believing, I think I was around like 15 or 16, it, it wasn't like this huge falling out of my faith. It just kind of fizzled. And I was like, yeah, I don't buy this anymore and it didn't really change my life my parents were still supportive i still had to go to church with them i just didn't buy into it anymore um i still had the same friends unit so i wasn't in like this insulated kind of evangelical group that i I hear a lot of people are and then leaving that is very isolating and and traumatic so i didn't have any of that Um, so i i think this would have been you know mid to late 90s and just kind of focusing on some of the the LGBT rights movements that were going on, uh, back then and just seeing how that was being fought against. And that never really made sense to me. Um, and then recognizing that, oh yeah, a lot of these religious institutions are, are fighting back and that makes absolutely zero sense. And then you started seeing, well, reproductive rights as the same kind of battle, having sexually explicit, um, media, whether it's just with television and radio, all the way to to pornography, they have the same kind of battles. And the opposer always seems to be wearing a cross. And so then it was just kind of like, oh, every kind of angle of an institution trying to police and control your sexuality in a very arbitrary and illogical way is coming from institutionalized Christianity in this country. And so it was just kind of connecting those dots and, you know, there are other you know oppressive forces, obviously, that restrict sexuality, but certainly the the church is up there as a top one.
0: You know, you've you've been so astute, as you said, at connecting those dots because I think a lot of people who follow you on Twitter, it might be the first thing, the first time that they're noticing that being anti-sex, um, being anti-LGBTQ, being um, you know anti all the things that you enumerated that those that those are all linked, right? But right. uh, um, there's another dot uh, that you connect that I really admire you for. You're um, very big in the space of pro-sex work worker therapy. Um, mm-hmm. This is a show where we're very um, feminist and very pro-sex and very pro-sex workers. And I've been so interested and I want people to understand um, the work that you're doing. Uh, to support people who choose to do sex work and want to be in therapy?
2: Yeah. So my involvement with um, sex workers rights movement, both on an activist side, as well as an academic uh, side and clinical side too, uh, was always wrapped up with uh, my partner's involvement with the sex workers outreach project. She used to be there used to be on their board and also was their vice president at a time. And so that that was really my introduction uh, to this in any type of like serious manner. Um, and so it was just from there and through her um that I started incorporating uh, the sex workers rights movement into, again, not only my academic work, but then working with her, she's she's a therapist as well, um into conceptualizing some theories and applied clinical practice that already exists out there, such as like the minority stress model with working with LGBT mm. folks and recognizing that poor health outcomes among that population isn't due to their sexual identity per se, but how society treats their sexual identity. And right. we started conceptualizing sex workers in the same vein of that. Yeah, if research shows that they may have poor health outcomes on X, Y, or Z, it's not necessarily the work per se, but how society treats the work and how it's criminalized and stigmatized, and so then it's just training therapists to view sex work through that lens, so they don't have these this knee jerk reaction of getting their their clients who may be um, selling sexual services to quit that, thinking that it's a cause or consequence of a mental health disturbance.
0: I mean, Whitney and I have interviewed. More than one escort on our show, and a lot of our listeners um, have done transactional sex work or, um, you know, at some point or are doing it. And one of the things that we hear is people telling us that they go to a therapist and the therapist. Presumes, pathologizes them straight out of the gate, and presumes Mm -hmm. that if they're doing sex work, something's wrong. This person is broken, and we also hear that from people who um, are committed to consensual non-monogamy, right? That that they can go trusting, you know, trusting that they'll get good psychotherapy and good support from somebody neutral, and then they go in there for psychotherapy and they're told, okay, well, this can't work. And it means that you're wrong or you're broken. And you've really helped um, tell clinicians that they can't make these assumptions. I want to thank you for that.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Mental health as a field does not have a good track record or history of dealing with sexuality. Um,
0: Whoa, hold on. That was such (laughs) a...
2: I know. I'm saying the pretty controversial stuff right now. There's the
0: headline. Could you say that again? Because people (laughs) need to hear that.
2: that. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, like I I teach adult psychopathology to our grad students and, you know, we teach out of the DSM. I want them to learn how to be, uh, be able to diagnose people when they're practicing. But there's always this huge asterisk next to it of, we have a bad history of treating individuals. And especially Mm -hmm. true of of dealing with anything related to the sexuality that deviates from that very narrow and rigid sexual norms that we were talking about earlier. And so, you know, obviously this had a history of pathologizing homosexuality as being a a Mm -hmm. mental illness, the fight right now of what to do with gender dysphoria still being in the DSM not called gender identity disorder anymore. It's gender dys- dysphoria, mm-hmm. but I even mean, its inclusion, even in some capacity, can still be pathologizing. You see this with BDSM and kink behaviors, any other types of atypical or unconventional types of sexual expression. And like what you said with polyamory and uh, consensual non-monogamy, that can easily get over pathologized. Especially
0: female infidelity, right? I was yeah. shocked when I reviewed the literature and interviewed experts. I was shocked at how many of them presumed that male infidelity was normal and female infidelity was pathological. Amazing.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And this goes back to training therapists uh, because I've been going like in my doctoral program. So like five years, it was four years of classes, then an internship for a year. So those four years of classes, I think we touched upon sexual health or sexuality Maybe for 45 minutes, covering the sexual disorders in a psychopathology class. And that's it. And I know med students get similar training that is, it's very, very short. Um, And so, all these, yeah, all these helping professionals that we think are experts at physical and mental well being, that may be true, but that is in the absence of sexual well being. And they Mm -hmm. still can be. Um, kind of inflicted with the, the same sex negativity that just permeates our entire culture. And so it takes a lot of additional training for therapists to kind of recognize that and overcome that, and making sure they're not perpetuating these same sexual stigmas um, in their practice.
1: And do you think that that's changing now? Like, are they becoming more open to learning about that?
2: I'm a pessimist, so no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Can> <laughs> everything it- has kind of really black sunglasses on right now, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, Wait. but that, that's just me. You're at home no, right? I, I think it, there is improvement um, and, and there will be continual improvement, but it's always going to be a push. It's never going to be that, oh, everything's great now. Everyone's welcoming this with open arms. It is always, um, at least what I expect in my lifetime, always going to be a fight to make sure that people are being educated uh, with in regards to sexuality.
0: Wow. Do you get tired of fighting?
2: uh yes but I, I i don't really know any other way so this is <laughs> so it's kind of like i get tired of living would be the same thing as uh, like I, I get tired of fighting um yeah like it, is, it, a lot it, of it is a drain so. it is a lot of fighting uh it's i think it's frustrating sometimes when i'm fighting some basic things that shouldn't even be part of the conversation right now and i i try to like manage that as best as possible. I mean, social media is great, but it's also a shit show. Okay. And like I have my settings especially on Twitter in a way that I don't see a lot of the noise that's getting thrown in my direction because uh, that would just be like too much to handle looking through my notifications. Right. Um but when it when it's there it's just like, are you serious? And yeah. It's like they're they're not even at the same like intellectual table. They're they're at a kid's table. They're uh, at the kids' table of sexuality. They, they are, and it's like trying to debate a creationist. And it's like, what? Where do you even go with that? You yeah, can't.
0: Where do you and go so, with
2: that? Yeah, and so you just have to have to ignore um, a lot of them and just keep pushing uh, for those who are capable of learning. And th- that's really where I look at like a, a target audience. Is yeah, I, I preach to the choir a lot. Those are the ones who follow me. But occasionally my message will get outside of that bubble and land on individuals who just may not have thought about something in this way and that they're open to seeing something a little bit differently. I don't expect to change the minds of like the, you know, the Tucker Carlson diehard fans or whatever. They're in their own little universe. Um, But there are those still open to to learning. They're out there.
1: And I feel like they're talking, like they're speaking a different language. Like that's something that I go through because I'm very open about, you know, polyamory and non-monogamy. And I get the same, you know, I get hit up in our DMs constantly about how terrible that is. And they just mm-hmm. can't even begin to open their mind to even try to understand. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, well, you're just speaking a different language. And that's, that's fine. I'm not here to change your mind, just like you said. But I'm hoping that maybe I could just plant seeds that people can just be more accepting
2: right yeah and that's the best that you can do you Mm -hmm. can put your message out there and it's going to land on the people that it's going to the land with and it's going to resonate with those who are open to it and that also helps me kind of deal with my own like neuroticism with perfectionism and stuff of like, why doesn't everybody love me? Why don't I get hundred percent like approval? <laughs> right, with stuff? Right, right. It's like just my very existence of being a sex educator, regardless of what I'm talking about, I probably have half the country hating me and hating that the fact that my job exists. And yet
0: event. and yet the ripple effect is huge. Like I'm just thinking of your academic work, right? Like in terms of your writings about, say, sex work or affirmative therapy, just one example mm-hmm. of what you do, I have seen the ripples of that. I have seen how your academic thinking about that and your activism about that hasn't just galvanized people who work in the transactional sex space, but I have seen through work like yours that therapists have to up their game. They have to educate themselves. And then I've seen, that there's a ripple down effect. I mean, I do think that you're having an impact and I do think that the sex positivity movement that you're part of, and I I feel like you kind of elevate the discussion in the sex positivity space with your credentials and, um, your passion. But I I do see you, I get get from being on Twitter and Instagram, I know haters really well. But Mm -hmm. I just want to tell you what you already know. But we want to tell you that we see you having a big impact.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Um, Again, like my perfectionism, I can lose sight of that and kind of focus on things where I don't think it's landing well, or I'm not doing enough. Um, So I'm definitely appreciative of that, of that feedback.
1: I mean, that's called being human, right? We hope right, all yeah. do that. We could have the best week ever, and we're just going to pinpoint exactly what we fucked up on.
0: Or yep. that one <laughs> that one bitchy DM among 700 that we, we probably get so many DMs that we don't even see yeah. one tenth of the really positive ones. And then there's that shitty one where somebody's shitting on your work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. your okay. I know one of your therapies for this, Eric. I know one of the mm-hmm. things you do. You okay. love horror movies, and you yeah. and you love Edgar Allan Poe. I do. I want to know more about both of those things.
2: Yeah, so that has had just a lifelong presence in my life, um, like gothic, so but the gothic stuff. Yeah. Um, so I was a little little kid um, in the early '80s, and the best I can pinpoint of like if there was a moment that was kind of defining for me, for some of these interests, it would be when the Thriller music video came out. Um, you guys,
0: if you haven't seen it, just Google Michael Jackson Thriller and watch it right now. I don't know how young you are, but you
2: need to see it.
1: Also, yeah, if you haven't I mean, seen it, what have you been doing with your life? I know. I'm sorry, are you even one of the best alive? music videos
2: ever. <laughs> right. So the combination of like the werewolf transformation and then the zombies, it... Freaked me out as a child. I was a <laughs> young kid, and so like I was scared to death of it and those like yellow eyes that he had. That that was terrifying, but also I loved it. And I was obsessed with like um, uh, movie monsters and special effects makeup all throughout childhood. Halloween was always my favorite holiday. I loved playing dress up. That's, that's why I became an altar boy. It wasn't a, a calling or, for faith or for God or anything. I like the idea of not having to sit in the pew for an hour and actually, <laughs> you know, play dress up and go up on the stage for a while. Yeah, wear a f-
0: freaking cloak.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that was great. I was always like intru- interested in that kind of stuff. And so... But, you know, everybody watched Thriller and, and listened to that in the early 80s. So why did it stick with me and, as opposed to other people? I don't know. That that just may be on a cellular level why <laughs> it stuck stuck a little bit more. But the interest has always been there. And, like, things relating to Halloween, anything spooky, the macabre, that, that, that's always been present.
0: And when did you get into Edgar Allan Poe? Because I think Edgar Allan Poe fuses, you know, sex and gothic in these really crazy fun ways
2: yeah i I think probably high school i was introduced to to some of his definitely like the raven and maybe some short stories and then i I appreciated the at least the aesthetic that poe put out there i knew of him um and so i knew that you know this is like gothic literature and short stories and horror fiction and so I liked all that. I didn't really appreciate um, the literature aspect of it, the poetry aspect to it. Um, until much later in my life, in fact, probably just over the past 10 years of really going back to those poems and reading line by line and kind of dissecting them. And then on really bored summers, memorizing poems. And so it, I just kind of I'm always like rediscovering uh, his work.
1: I'm so opposite when it comes to horror movies. They scare the shit out of me. But I used to love (laughs) The the Exorcism or Exorcist. Oh, The Exorcist. I love that. I used to love horror movies when I was younger, but for some reason I can't even now hear like a theme song or something because then my (laughs) mind just goes into overdrive of how they're going to come and chop me up and – And
0: bad things are going to happen. The Exorcist was different, but Mm -hmm. but there are so many horror movies. Like now I'm talking about like the one, you know, the horror movie themes in which women are always getting stabbed for having sex. Right,
2: (laughs) right, right. Yeah, the punishment. (laughs) Yeah, very 80s monster movie kind of thing. Yeah, like Mm
0: -hmm. how did did people misunderstand Edgar Allan Poe so much where it became like Friday the 13th where if the girl has sex, she's murdered? I don't know. I know,
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I like uh, some of the more recent horror movies over the past several years have been definitely shying away and getting away from more of those slasher films, a very cliche. So I'm thinking like movies like The Witch um, mm. and Hereditary, things that are like atmospheric and a lot of people don't like because it. It doesn't have those kind of cliché jump scares, and there's not an identifiable monster. Um, that it's more of just like this eerie mood, and you have to be comfortable with that silence that creates that discomfort, and really go along for that ride. Those are the kind of movies that I'm really glad that are becoming a little bit more popular now, and they, they're certainly poesque for me. Those
0: are What's going into favorite? the show notes. Those two <laughs> yes. are going into the show notes, yeah. so yeah, that people can hear.
1: Yeah, I agree. And if there's one that you could be like, okay, guys, you have to watch this one, what would it be?
2: Well, for me, my favorite movie uh, is The Witch that came out a few years ago. I put an asterisk next to that just because it's new. I want to see how how well it holds up maybe 10, 20 years from now. <laughs> um, but other than that, my go-tos would be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Rosemary's Baby, oh, and yeah. The Shining. And The Shining. Oh, um, The Shining. Yeah. And again, none of those are like jump scares, like monster movies. I grew up with the the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street movies and I I like those. Those are fun but I like more the atmospheric long, like slow burn kind of movies. I
0: mean, Rosemary's Baby like, it's just so ageless, fucked by Satan Mm -hmm. and having Satan's baby. (laughs) It just ages really beautifully.
2: Yeah, and how all the, the Satanists like in her building are just gaslighting her and so there's a lot of you know, interesting components that still play out today.
1: I think that's an interesting little segue because you talk about Satanism as well. And can you kind of describe how that shows up in your life or what that looks like for you? Because I don't think a lot of people understand that.
2: Sure. So for me, it kind of always has gone hand in hand with some of my more gothic macabre interests. Um, so with the iconography of Satanism, like the inverted pentacles or inverted crosses and six, 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 stuff like that, that's always been part of my life through horror movies and heavy metal music and stuff like that. So that's always kind of just been painting in the balls, um, where it started to become political for me was with, um, the activities of the satanic temple, where they really took this iconography and this belief system um, into activism and challenging, um, Christian supremacy in our country and trying to really fight for more of a secular nation, a separation of church and state, because people will say that, oh, we're fighting for religious liberty until the Satanists show up. And then, uh, it's not really about liberty anymore for everybody. It's just liberty for Christians. Right. And so that's where, that's what I like it for me. Satanism is a nice, it's a legit religion, uh, both from the Church of Satan and now with the, the Satanic Temple. Um, for me, how I view it, as it's like a transition step between theism and atheism. I think Satanism needs to be in there to really invert things and to challenge assumptions and to kind of chisel away at supremacy before we actually live in more of a secular world.
0: You know, I think that's such a great example also of the power of language and how it changes When I was a kid, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is one of the most religious cities in the United States. There are more churches per square mile than anywhere else in the world. Um, And it's a very fundamentalist Christian culture. And my parents were atheists. And when I was growing up there in the 70s, um, in the early 70s, um, atheism. And being an atheist really had the ring that the term Satanist has now. I mean, yeah, absolutely, it was they're definitely really, interchangeable. It was mm-hmm. just considered so out there and um, almost scary, right? Like people would right. people would say to me, "Your parents are atheists." Um, <laughs> it, it almost <laughs> felt like they were saying that my parents were Satanists. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how you know, hearing somebody like you talk about Satanism and the school. Uh, uh, sorry and Satanism as a religion and as a sort of subversive um, activist movement. I wonder, you know, how much people's opinions are going to change about that.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, But I think they do a great job of, of really just just challenging what we think it means to be a, a religious individual in in this country and so and things that we just all go along with I even mean, as non-believers of a quick little prayer before a city council meeting i'm looking outside my window right now and I see a giant 20-foot cross on top of a church that's one block to the east i have another church one block to the west we're surrounded by these christian symbols and don't think anything of them just because they're so ingrained in our culture mm-hmm. but then once we start seeing other symbols if like a mosque went up um oh, you know a, a block yeah or a, or a synagogue everyone starts freaking out at other people's uh, symbols including satanism i think that's just the, the you know an obvious inversion and sometimes a literal inversion of christianity and uh, the christian cross that really challenges people's um, their own biases when it comes to what what it means to to live in a, a pluralistic uh, supposedly religiously free country
1: yeah and i mean I don't know much about Satanism, um, and I feel like in our country there's a lot of like pushback there, but I looked up the fundamental tenets, and there's seven of them. I'm not going to read through them all, but it's really one should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures, and um, one should take care to never distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. People make mistakes. One should do best to rectify it and resolve any harm that might have been caused. And it's like, yeah, for sure. And it kind of sounds like Buddhism. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's just like the spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice should always prevail. And it's like, wow, I had a really skewed idea of what Satanism is. And I know a lot of people probably agree with me on that. But after reading this, it's just, it's really enlightened my idea of of what it is. So
2: yeah, mo- yeah, modern satanism is non-theistic or atheistic. They actually don't believe in a, a literal devil. That's a Christian concept and uh, devil worship is just an accusation that Christians like to to put on political or religious rivals. But modern satanism like the the Satanic Temple is is non-theistic and the closest thing would be like a secular humanist, to which some of those tenets that you just Uh, stated certainly fall in line with how can we be better humans and work together to be better humans.
0: Um, I have a question unrelated to Satanism, or maybe tangentially related. (laughs) I want to talk about your new project, which is before we go, because we have to go in a few minutes. I could keep you here all day. I know, same. I know. But but (laughs) you have this new project called Uncrucifying Sex, and I want to know all about it.
2: Yeah, so that was actually that had origins with John Hagee, kind of making full circle uh, here. Something he tweeted out was um, a Bible passage I was unfamiliar with um, that said something about crucifying the flesh um, as a way to you know essentially deprive yourself of the physical world um, and and fleshly pleasures to to pursue spiritual um, whatever. Um, So I I thought that really captured um, kind of you know my my mission on social media and I wanted to do it a little bit more longer form. So I, th- I think a book is going to be the best fit. And it's really how to essentially uncrucify the flesh and uncrucify sex to liberate it from that very narrow definition of permissible Christian sexuality. That again, that applies to a you know, a decent segment of our, our population. If it fits, that's great. But it doesn't fit for everybody. And we shouldn't be forced to fit into a value system that was arbitrarily created and is only fitting for those who actually believe in that value system. So we need to look at how can we establish our own secular sexual values, things that may be based on knowledge and bodily autonomy and consent, and then just having those three basic ingredients, then we can really explore what it means to be a sexually healthy individual for ourselves. And that's kind of what the, the book Ideas is all about. It's essentially a guide for non-believers like atheists uh, to really liberate their sexuality from Christianity and establish their own sexual values.
0: Oh, my God. The world needs that book. And until it's out, people can go to your website, am I correct, and read some of your other writing in Scarlet Letters?
2: Yeah, I have some scarlet letter posts from, you know, I haven't looked at them. They could be very embarrassing. They're, they're, they may be dated from like 10 years ago, but they're up there as just some um, examples of my writing. And um, yeah, so I'm writing everything related to crucifying sex kind of offline right now to see kind of where this this goes. But yeah, uh, my website, I have some some writing samples up there.
0: And if people want to find you on social media, tell us and tell them how they can do that.
2: I am at at Dr. Sprinkle, um, and I'm just on. Uh, what am I on Twitter and Instagram?
0: Great, follow Dr. Sprinkle. You will not be sorry, and you will be amused, enlightened. What else?
1: Educated. Yeah.
0: Educated.
1: <laughs> if you're gonna like. You'll be educated, and you'll laugh at the same time, and then you'll send them to all of your friends. If you're like me,
0: <laughs> I know they ter- It's one of the ways I communicate with people. <laughs> if I want somebody to have a good day, literally screenshot one of your tweets and text it to somebody.
2: Well, so. I appreciate that. And yeah. you also get to see my, my cats occasionally. I like posting that. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. my God. Your three cats. Look for his Catterday cat mm-hmm. his cat day posts, right? I love those. Yeah. And They're if, my life. As a, cat, <laughs> as a cat lover, I just want to say to you, respect.
2: Yes.
1: I don't have a cat, but I do love cats. So respect to both of you guys. (laughs)
0: Thank you. (laughs) We love the pussies. We do Um, love the pussies. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your time and thanks for your wonderful work.
2: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review.
1: Yeah. Leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.